Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, with a new episode of Global Caveat. Today's episode is gonna get real dirty, like, but actual dirt, the kind on the ground. We're gonna talk about irrational fears of butterflies, snakes, wandering around in the forest, and what we can do to help preserve this planet. But first, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. Global Caveat is a listener-supported podcast, which means we appreciate any amount or form of support you can give us. We have a Patreon page on our website, and for just one, three, or five dollars a month, you can become a patron. We have cute names for them too, like if you donate one dollar a month, you're an outbreak. If you donate three dollars a month, you're an epidemic, and you can suggest future guests for the show. So I think that's pretty cool.、Mm-hmm. If you like what we do and you love our guests, please leave us a review, subscribe, and spread the knowledge. And speaking of knowledge, let's get dirty and get to today's episode with the amazing Becky Friesen, a graduate student studying ecology and wildlife conservation in Monterrey, Mexico. Hi, Becky. <laughs>、uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where people can reach you on social media? Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be speaking with you both.、Um, well, my name is Becky. You can find me on Instagram as @becky.outside, and I am a wildlife biologist. I'm pretty general in terms of what I study, but right now I work with butterflies, and I'm doing my masters in Mexico. So I could talk for ages about all the projects that I've done and everything, but that's kind of the general gist of it. So, like you said, you work with butterflies, which I'm. Irrationally afraid of, <laughs> and we've had multiple conversations about this. But I think it's interesting because you and Kellen from Chem with Kellen started this whole eco chem thing based on my irrational fear, <laughs> and now have made me so in love with butterflies. I mean, I don't want one to land on me, but I think that they're amazing. Baby steps—that's、um, all that counts. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that?、Um, have you found any other like? Animals or insects or anything that you've been able to change people's minds about like that. I know that's like so out there and has nothing to do necessarily <laughs> with what you're researching, but I'm just curious. Yeah, of, like personal.、Experience. I mean, I personally like when I first started doing or like being interested in research. I wanted to be a marine biologist, which didn't make any sense because I didn't see the ocean for the first time until I was like 16, so I didn't actually know anything about the ocean. But like aside from that, like I didn't actually know anything about really any. Exotic or tropical types of animals. So I personally was really afraid of a lot of things like snakes, lots of different kinds of insects, even butterflies. Like it's kind of weird to get used to like holding them and like their wings and that kind of stuff. Like I can totally understand how a lot of people that aren't used to working with animals can be afraid of all kinds of of different ones. So、um, yeah, for me, snakes was a big one. I was always afraid of them, and it wasn't until I started. Like working with snakes and working with a team that was working with snakes in Honduras, that I really came to appreciate them.、Um, so yeah, like I just find like the more that you know about things, the less afraid you are of them. So that's really cool. I feel like I went the opposite route. Like I grew up playing in the dirt, you know, roly polies, finding gardener snakes, like was a thing. I, oh yeah, I would like find like、um, wild bull snakes even. And, nice. Yeah, and I would. Like I had no problem with it, but now I could never be a wildlife biologist. Like, really? I mean, I think if I was in this situation, it's not that I would be fearful, but I think I would have extra precaution tendencies、yeah. just because there is that fear associated with a lot of what's unknown. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense though, because there's a lot of things, a lot of animals that people are afraid of just because it's like a, a reaction, but also a lot of things that people. Rightfully should be afraid of and should respect. Maybe not necessarily to be afraid of them, but 
I think there are situations where people should respect animals and respect what they're capable of and respect kind of like animals' intentions as they move through the world. Like they're trying to protect themselves, they're trying to get food, like that's what they're about. So in some cases, I think that kind of does make sense to be like, okay, I understand what these animals are capable of now, which is why I respect them and like I'm happy to keep my distance. So it's good for people to not be afraid of animals, but I think it's a good mixture to have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you talked about, um, I think what you say is interesting. Like you, we want as humans to respect the habitats of animals and their space. So I think let's take it back from there. And you're a wildlife biologist. Mm-hmm. So can you explain for our listeners then like what, what's a habitat? Like what's the ecosystem and all those things? Yeah. So when we're talking about an ecosystem, we talk about most people kind of just gravitate directly towards the animals and, and really charismatic animals specifically. Like we're talking about jaguars in the Amazon. We're talking about, you know, whatever other um, kinds of things. But when we talk about an ecosystem, we're really focusing on every single component within a system. So, and an ecosystem could be on a really large scale, or you could talk about a small scale ecosystem and that's kind of predefined. So for example, you can talk about the ecosystem of like a person's digestive system that contains all of the microbiome, all kinds of different bacteria, which I honestly, I'm not an expert in, but you can consider that an ecosystem because you have a defined limit to your system. And then you focus on everything that's alive within that system and how those things interact with each other. So that's kind of the, the biggest thing. And, and when we talk about it in conservation, yeah, you just have to specify, like, are you talking about a lake? Are you talking about a puddle on the road? Are you talking about the entire earth? So I was unaware of that. Like, I just didn't realize you could, like, use it. So, I mean, I guess that makes sense that it makes that you can use it across different disciplines. Yeah, I mean, things yeah, are always kind of I don't think I would have thought about it with your gut being yeah. an ecosystem. I like that. Yeah. Um, so what... What are the limits that you work in? Because I know you said it could be really small, but it could also be really big. Yeah. So I specifically am interested in forests, although I'm open to anything. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I really have worked with forests in the past. I've worked in the Amazon rainforest in Peru. Um, I've worked in the uh, cloud forest in Honduras, a montane cloud forest. And now I work in a, oh, what do they call it? A, A pine oak forest. I can't remember if it's a pine oak or an oak pine forest, but some technical forestry term for a mountain forest here in Mexico. So I'm really interested in forests and within that forest that gives you so many different options of things to look at. All the different kinds of animals, trees, um, water, shed, all kinds of different stuff. Okay. So you work with forests. Um, I am very unfamiliar with that. What I know about a forest is there's a lot of trees yes. and <laughs> dirt <laughs> and animals um, and that it's featured in a lot of horror films. Mm-hmm. Where, okay. <laughs> where girls run in and they're wearing barely anything and then they get chased by a killer. <laughs> of course, the lack of visibility is very scary, especially when you run yes. at night and with no shoes on. So that adds to the terror. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you, you do a lot of environmental justice related work and conservation. So um, what specifically about forests should we focus on conserving? Forests provide so much to so many people. Like, the the examples are endless, really. So, I mean, forests provide, first of all, a livelihood for a lot of people. Um, people who hunt, people who um, extract lumber, people who use it for tourism purposes. There's all kinds of different uses that forests can have, and it depends on whatever species are in the forest. You can get medicinal plants. Like, the options are endless. So, in terms of an economic resource, forests are a huge deal, as with pretty much any other ecosystem on the planet. But in terms of, like health and and people's well-being it's also just important on like a spiritual level 
um, on in terms of mental health, in terms of your actual physical health, like forests filter and store our water, they filter our air, um, they're a huge carbon sink, so they take carbon dioxide out of the air when they photosynthesize, which is a huge, like the main component in, in climate change. So yeah, like the important things about forests are really endless and it just depends like whatever you want to talk about from there. Like if you want to go into um, economy, social issues, health issues, anything like really they're related to everything. So I mean, it sounds like they're all super intertwined. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, we are a, um, and we do try to focus on health, but I think yes. that's great that yeah. you brought in all those different issues because on, in all honesty, when you talk about health, you can't ignore all those other components. Exactly. So, I mean, this is like really broad and I don't know, Diana, if you want, if you have a better question that you want to ask after I throw this out there, but I guess my thought is if forests are that impactful within, with, for humans in general, and how the forest inhabits so many different plants and animals and everything, and that impacts our health. Now, my question is, how do we communicate to people like me where a forest feels so distant, but it apparently does have such a huge impact on directly on my life and my health? Yeah, that's a huge question. And it varies from person to person. Because, for example, like if somebody lives on the coast and is really linked to the ocean, to the beach, and or lives in a really mountainous region and it's really dry or does you know like everybody has a different relationship to the environment and that depends on what they know and what is close to them so in terms of people who are not quite so familiar maybe like really urbanized or you know not so familiar with forests like tourism is a huge a huge positive influence so when people have the opportunity to interact with any environment that's a huge kind of pro in terms of our ability to express how important they are when people can physically see it and experience it and breathe the fresh air and and see the importance of the forest. And another end of that as well is education. So, I mean, everybody should be learning about forests in their, you know, middle school science classes and that kind of thing. And, and in cases where that education is not quite as accessible, it's really cool to have public programs and like um, get kids outdoors and all that kind of stuff. So, I think it's kind of like the personal experience paired with the education of a more formal education to communicate and and for everybody to appreciate exactly why and exactly how forests are so important to us. Hmm. I mean, I think that's interesting also because there is the whole, isn't the forest bathing that became pretty popular? What was that? Forest what? Anyone heard of that? The forest bathing where it's like, but not like bathing as in like going out and cleaning yourself, but like taking a walk. What is it in Japan? I believe they do it. I have never heard of this. Me neither, but no. I'm wow. all about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> or it's like, I think it's, I wow, watch me say the completely wrong term, but I think it's something like that where you go and you go walk in the forest and it's supposed to help you as a person and help like clean your mind spiritually, clean your lungs out, clean everything. Right. So is that a concept Which or is, is that like... I think it's a concept. Now I need to double check what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> otherwise I'm just telling people to go forest bathe. I mean, like I've never heard of that specifically like in the context yes. of... Okay. Forest bathing is taking time to unwind and connect with nature to improve your health. So <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah. So it's this okay. thing that's like a type of meditation that started... Well, I don't think it started in Japan, but that's where it really became a big deal where they have all of these different forests or different walkways that they have in the forest to help people. And they like tell them to go out and take walks so that way they can get the benefits from being amongst the trees. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this whole conversation reminded me of a post that you made 
a while ago because I just went and creeped on your Instagram to pull it <laughs> because I re- remembered it um, about how conserving the environment is more of a selfish endeavor, um, which makes complete sense because I guess we're here and most of the actions that humans have are for human benefit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Like, you know, we're here, we're a part of the ecosystem as as any other part of this ecosystem is. So it's, it's not to be like, oh, you know, how selfish and whatever, like, it's not to be in a negative context, but it's true. We have to remember that when we're talking about a lot of these things, like the earth is fine, like without us. And whenever we do all crash and burn and, you know, the world all ends and as long as the earth is left over, it will be fine. It will recover. I saw once, I think in high school, a teacher showed us these photos. I think they were just like a model, like CGI, some kind of photos that were like predictions of how the world will look when, if humans were, are gone. And they had these photos of, like, New York City of all these really, like, really recognizable monuments of just, like, all of these, like, vines growing through and, like, everything completely, like, taken back by nature. Obviously, they're not real, but it's very, very easy to imagine in that scenario where, you know, humans aren't here anymore. Like, nature's going to be fine. (laughs) I'd be cool if if New York got taken over by a bunch of ivy. (laughs) Could you imagine? It's like deer walking, like, down the street i can't think of a name of a good new york street but like in manhattan or something that's like yeah that's like an i am it's legend okay. where yes will smith is literally the only person alive and then everything else there's like vines everywhere but then yeah like <laughs> that's what i think of. yeah definitely yeah so i mean like when we think about it like nature is fine but we also have to recognize like our own motivations like what are we trying to get out of the environment and how do we kind of like balance all the different pros and cons and challenges of that so yeah so you know this is interesting because for me working in global health and when i study the history of global health the conservation aspect is at least how global health started like that wasn't really a thing i feel like because back then it was about human health colonization so human health meaning for like the like colonial settlers Mm -hmm. and then whatever they did extract from the environment it was taken from the indigenous people and it was used for their own benefits so then i'm thinking now like speed up to our time period and we have wildlife conservationists like yourself um what are the different power dynamics that exist within different places across the world that is a huge question (laughs) and i think you know, it could definitely be narrowed down, but I mean, if we want to take your example and, and like talk about indigenous people, like colonizers have kind of come about this whole thing of like, we are conservationists now, like this is a new thing that we're doing now and we're refusing straws and like, wow, this is so cool. Look at what we invented, which is ridiculous because indigenous people have been managing their ecosystems sustainably for thousands and thousands of years. So, I mean, if you want to look at that and now we, we, kind of like you say fast forward to modern day where you know we have indigenous people and people of color being oppressed by all kinds of different systems especially in terms of health like we have all kinds of serious health issues issues in the medical system that discriminate against people of color including indigenous people so if you want to look at that power dynamic like from where from my perspective conservation is a very white thing like indigenous people have been doing this for ages and now we're coming in and saying like ooh, this is a thing we invented but we're leaving everybody else out of it. Like, if you want to talk about going vegan or you want to talk about your electric car, like, guess what? That does not include everybody. We're talking about people who are privileged, people who come from this place of, you know, a lot of economic freedom. And that's not everybody. And that doesn't resonate with everybody. And that's not 
a good solution for a lot of the conservation issues that we have. So that's where I kind of come into this idea of more of like a systemic perspective on conservation. Like, let's talk about the government. Let's talk about what systems are in place that are favoring certain people over other people and not including everybody in conservation. And I just think that's like the most efficient way to achieve conservation in general. I don't think, I mean, I think refusing straws and, and all that is great and they're all things that I do, but I just can't envision that being like our best effort at conservation, you know, kind of on an individual basis. I just don't buy it. <laughs> so you, I think, I think that's brilliant. I mean, people get so angry if they see someone using a plastic straw and I'm like, that's fine that you care about that. But let's yeah. talk, let's like back up here, right? Like, are you also considering yeah. these systemic factors like you talked about? So then I want to ask, like, how do you try and bridge that gap as someone who's that like done field work in Peru and who is currently now in Mexico and you're working amongst a population that you don't personally identify with? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's a huge challenge because currently, like, I'm not Mexican and my situation in Mexico is a bit more involved with, like, the Mexican people because I'm working, like, I'm based out of a Mexican institution. My funding is from the Mexican Forestry Commission. Like, everything is Mexican. My publications will likely be in Spanish. Like, you know, I'm a lot more involved than I have been in past pro uh, projects. I'm a, lot, I'm a lot more involved with, like, local society kind of thing. But, I mean, aside from that, like, I can't. I d I'm not a voting Mexican citizen. I really, in my opinion, have no authority to go to any Mexican government um, commission and be like, this is what I think about your ecosystems. Like, no, like, screw off. Like, you're not from here. You don't know anything about Mexico. Like, just because you did your master's here doesn't mean that you know anything. So in my opinion, like, I, do, I don't have really any place here. I'm kind of just here to generate the knowledge and hopefully it'll be useful to somebody down the line. And, and it's, a, you know, a good experience for me in a really selfish um, perspective. So with that being said, really like one of the things that I've kind of been coming to terms with over my past few years working abroad is that my efforts will probably be better and uh, more efficient um, from Canada which is where I'm from so that's yeah that's what I'm kind of thinking about now. I think it's um, interesting that you mentioned that you recognize that although you work with people that are that you work with local researchers and other people but you find that even though you are considered an expert or, yeah, you would be considered an expert in this field, that you don't feel that you have the authority to go to the government or go to a Mexican authority to say, like, oh, I think you should do this because isn't that what, I mean, this is, like, just expanding it a lot. That's what the Global North does all the time, right? They go yes. to other countries and they're like, you should do this. Like, yes. this is how you can better your own country, your society, and your culture if you just did this, right? yeah. And it is just an extension of colonialism, exactly. Like, and, you know, I can create this data and knowledge and leave it here, and that's great. But at the end of the day, like, the issues that, in my opinion, that Mexican people face specifically when it comes to, like, let's talk about national parks because I'm studying in a national park. Those issues are issues of, you know, funding not being allocated and corruption on really, you know, a really broad governmental scale. Like, what do I know about that? What authority do I have in that? Zero, nothing. Like, I have no right to say, like, oh, you guys need to change, stop being so corrupt so that you can afford to invest in this national park. Like, I mean, that would be great, but that's not my place to say at all. So it's just so many complex issues that I honestly barely understand at home, let alone in another country. So, <laughs> so I think that's super interesting because 
when people think about like wildlife and the environment and in terms like i don't know wildlife conservation or wildlife biology i don't think i my mind doesn't immediately think oh that's like that could be a political thing um i just think oh like science and really cool science (laughs) you get to see animals you work with plants like awesome that's really cool but like i think this um direction that you also are facing is very political in a lot of ways um and people like you said people in power have used it and continue to use it in selfish ways that unfortunately have not benefited marginalized groups as much as it should have right yeah (laughs) um i mean i think like the biggest thing that i've taken away from that whole like big rant is just that everything is political like it's inescapable and I never studied politics or anything social when I was in university studying to be a conservationist. And I just think that's wrong because now that I'm in this field, I just realize I see so many intersections with industry, with government, with all kinds of different things. So everything is political. Let's just (laughs) let's just accept it. (laughs) I think that's actually a super interesting point to bring up because I think a lot of people in sciences and in arts would like to think that that's not the case. But politics really drives everything. Like that's mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. I mean, collectively as a like society, of, yeah. we've agreed to all work within this framework of a government, regardless of what the government looks like. So I mean, yeah, I think it's naive to try to separate anything from it, really. But I will take anyone's arguments. <laughs> <laughs> what? So what is your current research? My current research is really fun. Um, I'm studying the effect of a forest fire on butterfly communities in a nearby national park, which was previously the largest national park in Mexico until a big chunk of it was sold off for real estate development. But it's still beautiful. Um, And basically, I'm studying a moderate intensity forest fire. So there's all kinds of different research in tropical um, areas and in the Mediterranean and in different regions with different climates where... Um, either butterfly populations really suffer following a fire or they actually really increase because kind of the sun comes in and the flowers all grow from the forest floor because there's no more trees blocking the the sunlight and yeah so there's actually a lot of really conflicting research and a lot of those have different intensity fires different areas of fire so um, mine is a kind of a unique climate in a unique situation which is why it's really interesting so why are butterflies so important butterflies i mean butterflies Some species, very many species, are pollinators, which is a huge deal. So they pollinate crops. They're not as prominent of pollinators as like if you want to talk about bees or or moths are actually usually even more prominent pollinators, but butterflies are in there as well. Um, But butterflies are just a really ecologically diverse group. So you have butterflies that eat everything. So they kind of sneak their way into every single food web within an ecosystem. They can eat um, fruits. They can eat nectar. They eat salt, so you can sometimes see butterflies, like, drinking. If if anyone lives on a farm, anyone listening, like, you can see butterflies drinking, like, cow urine and, like, feces. Um, They like rotting meat in the tropics. Like, they fit into every niche. And obviously, they're, like, really important as a food source for so many different animals. So, ecologically, they're huge, and they also provide a lot of benefits to people. So, what would happen if... All the butterflies died in the world. <laughs> I mean, certain species are more important than others. I think that's like a reality that we can accept <laughs> as, as biologists. Um, but yeah, like if they all disappeared, it would be a huge issue for all ecosystem functioning. Like if you have a certain density and species diversity of butterflies and they're all gone, then whatever preys on those butterflies is also going to suffer population declines or become completely extant. Um, or extinct, so extinct like in a specific area or extinct in the whole world. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, it just hugely affects the food chain. Then whatever your predators are that are preying on those animals are gone. And then you have issues with, you know, the vegetation as well. So the butterflies are pollinating the crops and the, and all the different plants and then that's not happening. So, I mean, if you take any level of any food web out, the ecosystem's going to suffer. It doesn't matter if it's butterflies. It doesn't matter if it's fungus, if it's bacteria, if it's a certain species of plant. Like if you take any level out of an ecosystem, it will suffer and do you i mean this is a random question do you have an opinion on like butterfly pavilions not really i've always really liked them (laughs) yeah i think they're really fun yeah i've never asked because um i mean because there are tensions out there with like zoos and aquariums yeah some of them aren't very ethical and they literally take like a fish out of the ocean and they stick it in a tank for profit Yeah. yeah so i don't know if that's the same thing for butterflies yeah, I've not actually, like, really looked into it or read anything specifically about butterflies being not an ethical um, a tourist attraction. I personally really like them. Obviously, I think in any zoo or any animal institution, there have to be regulations and it has to be um, well-maintained. But, I mean, because butterflies are invertebrates, they don't, they're not as as regulated, at least in Canada. And they d- they don't feel like they don't suffer in another in a way that another animal would. So really butterflies, like as long as they have food and mates, like they're quite happy. So they're not going to feel pain. They're not going to suffer, you know, that kind of thing. So not that they should be anyway. But when you're talking about animal rights issues in zoos, like issues that would come up for animals like maybe elephants or tigers are not going to come up for insects. So in my opinion, I'm, I'm quite a fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's super interesting. I would have never... I mean, I know that the ecosystem, you know, everything's so connected. So if you do take one component out, like it does actually really affect the other parts. But the reason I asked, like, what would happen if butterflies just disappeared is because I feel like, I mean, over time, there have been certain animals or, you know, things that have exited the ecosystem, unfortunately, due to human (laughs) intervention. Um, But nature has a way of compensating for that. So I don't know if within your research, people have been noticing or saying like, oh, well, in this area, this butterfly species is low, but other things in nature have compensated for it to continue the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what the specific niche of that species is. So if that's a pollinator species, that's going to be a bigger issue than if it's Um, especially if it's a generalist or, you know, just depending on what the niche is, does it feed on a lot of things or is it really specific to one um, host plant or whatever? Um, And it depends on the time scale as well. So if it's kind of a gradual decline, the ecosystem has a bit more time to kind of try and compensate. Sometimes it goes better than in other times, again, depending on what the niche of that specific species is. But yeah, it does depend on the time scale as well. And I love that you're so excited to talk about butterflies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) I could talk about animals like forever and like because I'm because I'm like pretty general like I've worked like a couple seasons with snakes and a couple seasons with hummingbirds and then I used to work with rats and now I'm working with hummingbirds like I do know some cool stuff but it's not like if you get like a lifelong butterfly expert that could talk for like days and days and days with that being said I could definitely like I could just talk about conservation in general for ages (laughs) I'm like the trying not to like bore people it's like that one Sarah is it Sarah Anderson comic where it's like um (laughs) having like a normal conversation and then there's like the big like elephant in the room of like whatever species I'm super stoked about today that's like don't come into the conversation and then you just do it anyway so I'll find a way to work it in (laughs) well actually I was gonna ask um so I mean you talked about how like the like the different um conservation methods Mm -hmm. 
and things like you know not using plastic all the way to thing things like researchers to do to conserve our environment for the everyday person what would you tell them is the best thing they can do to conserve the environment around them vote 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 (laughs) how many times can i say it (laughs) um this is like a personal opinion of mine so a lot of people will tell you um a lot of interesting you know different types of things you know we look at all the single-use plastic don't use single-use plastic yeah that sucks you know eat less meat yeah that's really good for the environment but like if you take for example so we had all these straw bands coming up last year so if we use this as an example I refuse a straw in a store, in a restaurant, because I'm having my own personal impact. Meanwhile, the people next to me at the table have had a huge dinner, and they've all taken straws, and like, okay, we balance each other out, but it happens. Now, if you look at that issue and you say, look at all the straw bans that came into effect last year, um, statewide, in terms of cities, like, this wasn't a federal government issue ever. Like, individual municipalities have the power to... And put straw bans into effect to put in single uh, single use plastic bag bans, you know, whatever else you want to talk about. So if you compare the impact of me not ordering a straw to the impact of my city saying, okay, no more straws in the city, like compare that impact. Like, why would I not go and, you know, speak to my representatives and lobby and protest and say, listen, like, can you help us with this? Because it's going to be a bigger impact if a government you know, it puts in a carbon tax. Like, let's have a carbon tax instead of shaming people for driving in their cars. Like, if we use it, take a tax, and, you know, in my home province, we just had a carbon tax coming to effect, like, two years ago. And I get a tax rebate for that, because legally I live in poverty. (laughs) So I get money deposited into my account. We're taxing these companies that are, you know, contributing to the most emissions. And I just think that's a way bigger impact than then, you know, let's all ride the bus, which we should ride the bus. But I just think, and if you want to take the bus example, why don't we vote and lobby our representatives to get more efficient bus routes and make it more affordable and accessible so that we want to take the bus? I think that's way better than just saying, hey, everybody on an individual level, like, just take the bus more and that's going to solve our problems because it's not. (laughs) That's so depressing. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's realistic. Honestly, um... Because I think, especially on social media, I think um, people are very quick to judge and very quick to get angry at a lot of things. Yeah. And I think about, the straw thing is funny because I I have metal straws that I use at home and I try to take around with me. Um, But sometimes I will order a drink and before I even say like, oh, I don't need a straw, they'll put in a straw for me. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not going to take the straw out and throw it away because it's the same thing as if I were just to drink the drink anyway and then throw it away. They've already given it to um, you. <laughs> like the more effective thing is to, if I if I want this to happen, not just at the individual scale, but a larger scale, right? I do need to start going up and voicing my opinion. Yeah. And, voting. yeah. and it's not to knock all of those things because like I absolutely, like I think that's a great thing to do. Like, yeah, refuse your straws. Yeah, use your reusable bags. Like everything you can do, like check off the list. Like I think those are all great efforts and everybody who's kind of working to raise awareness about those issues. Like I think that's absolutely a, a worthy effort and, and something that's worth our time. But I just don't think that those should stand a, apart from discussions of how our politics influences the environment because you can't have, you know, you, you can't 
change your diet and hope that climate change will go away because it won't. Yeah. What? It won't? (laughs) And it's not that it's not good. It's not that it's not helpful, but it just, we can be more efficient with our resources than everybody just trying to do this all individually rather than coming together and saying, okay, we want to change the way our food system works. You know, we want to change X, Y, Z. It's just, it's more efficient and it's better to come together, in my opinion. (laughs) This is like a random question. Okay, the butterfly effect. Mm, mm -hmm. Is that a real thing? I think that's a pretty like philosophical. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a philosopher. Let's not get carried away, ladies. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't actually seen the movie. I know what you're talking about, but I mean, yes. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, they say. How would like, we ever prove it? Yeah, and the flap. I, I need to refresh my memory, but it's like the the flap of a butterfly's wings, right? Like changes the whole course of history. <laughs> yeah. So I guess with no butterflies, then... <laughs> kind of a moot point. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, I think as an abstract concept, yes. But I think, like, the literal flaps of a butterfly wing, I think that might be taking it a bit too far. <laughs> you're, you're telling me it can't create a tornado. <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. I'm not a meteorologist <laughs> either, but... <laughs> But, like, what if the butterfly is butterfree and, like, the really strong wing flaps, right? True. Very true. Like, that's going to make something. (laughs) Also, I heard that they used to be called flutterbys. What? Yeah. I've never heard that. Like, the original word, the name for it wasn't butterfly. I think it was flutterby. I mean, flutterby makes a lot more sense if you're talking about, like, a literal. Right, because they... They flutter by you. Mm-hmm. Yes. I always actually wondered about, like, the origin of the word. Because if you, like, think of the words for butterfly in other languages, in Spanish is mariposa, which doesn't sound like butterfly at all. And in French is papillon, which is, like, also doesn't sound anything like butterfly. So I'm like, did every language just, like, come up with their own thing for this? Or, like, I always wondered like, that. like, oh, we see this thing. <laughs> yeah. Because when you look at other words, a lot of them have, like, roots in Latin, and they're very similar across languages. And that one's always just seemed very, like, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> very random. Yeah. True. I just looked it up, and apparently they changed it because there was a, a some English dude that couldn't say flutter by because it, like, he just couldn't say it with his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of, like, have you heard, I feel like this is true, although I might have to fact check it, about why people in Spain, why they all have, speak with Spanish with a lisp because of that one king that had a lisp and he was really shy about it. So he just was like, everybody in Spain talks with a lisp now, so I don't feel like a jackass. Oh. Um, that's, that's what that reminds me of. <laughs> Stop it. That is hilarious. I'm going to have to Google that one, but yeah, I definitely heard that and I could see it. <laughs> wow. This is what... Okay, if you are a man in power with an insecurity, <laughs> just <laughs> I we guess just, the answer is just to make everyone else look like you and sound like you. We're just going to change language now because that's the kind of power we have. <laughs> wow. I mean, isn't that how history has pretty much worked? Yes. Thanks, straight so. white dudes, for all you've given us. Woo. <laughs> that is so funny. Just kidding. I love you, straight white dudes. <laughs> um, just in case you were wondering... Because my internet knows me so well. The thing that it gives me next afterwards flutter by, like when I try to look things up, like the next thing, then people also ask is, what is butterfly poop called? Oh yeah, what is that called, Becky? That's a great question. I don't know. Although I was under the impression that butterflies like pooped and peed at the same time and they kind of just like secrete like a thing. I have no idea. (laughs) 
Have you ever seen butterfly poop? Yeah, I mean, sometimes they kind of, like, squish out fluid on your finger or something. <laughs> but it's kind of like, have you ever had it, like, when a ladybug does it, when you're, like, playing with a ladybug and that, like, little, like, yellow stuff comes out? Stop. That's their excrement? I mean, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm not a physiologist, but I'm pretty sure, yes. <laughs> I have never just played with a ladybug. What? <laughs> no. Did you grow up under a rock? No. I mean, I guess if you did grow up under a rock, you probably would have seen ladybugs there, so that's not even a valid question. <laughs> I, uh, now, okay, so tell me this then. Butterflies and moth, they're, they're, they essentially both come from caterpillars. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Now, my boyfriend is terrified of moths. <laughs> oh? <laughs> like, he is so scared of them. And in the summer in Colorado, um, there's, like, a short period of time where moths are everywhere. Oh, no. And he, like, he will not go in his garage because there are moths, like, on the wall. And so he'll literally park on the street because he doesn't want to put his car in there. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I, I mean, do you work with moths at all? I don't know if they're, like, completely different in terms of... I know you kind of touched on how they... Um, you said something about what, like, one thing that they're different. But I don't know how, like, how different are they really? Um, in terms of evolution, I do believe that moths, um, are, like, more, oh, how do you say that in evolution when they're, like, more, um, evolutionary basic or, like, butterflies are more, like, advanced in terms of adaptations. But there is a butterfly family that's very similar to spirited, which is very similar to moths. So, in theory, like, we do group them based on families, but in theory, they're, like, really similar. Um, or I guess in practice, they're really similar. Moths, um tend to rest with their wings open instead of like closed up with like a, you know what I mean like pointing upwards um butterflies have clubbed antennae so they've got like the little like ball at the end moths tend to be nocturnal and butterflies tend to come out during the day being diurnal but that like all of those things are kind of like general guidelines but like there's there are always exceptions to that and they're kind of the lines between them are quite blurry so so at least in the in terms of like the role that they play within the, the society yes. ecosystem, <laughs> do they essentially do the same thing just like at different parts of the day? Yeah, um, yeah, they have you know yeah between species it varies obviously like what their diet right. is and everything specifically, but yeah overall. Dang. I've seen some crazy moths like do you think? they're real big and really furry and yes moths are actually so cool like I wish I could study them and maybe I will in the future because they're so and they're so understudied like they're so underrated because yeah. everyone's always just like ooh monarch butterflies like anything you want to know about Lepidoptera which is the family of moths and butterflies everyone the first thing is always a monarch butterfly they're such freaking divas and everyone knows everything yeah. about them and every other species is left out and everyone's afraid of moths and things are gross and they're like so fluttery and lame and ew but I think they're so cool and somebody needs to get on that we need to get better at studying moths because we're doing them an injustice <laughs> <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> you basically just answered everything, but I was just about to ask. I was like, do you think that moths feel slighted? Like, do they feel jealous of butterflies? I don't care what they feel. I feel slighted on their behalf. So <laughs> I am outraged. <laughs> I, I wonder why people are so scared of moths, though. I think they, just because they come out at night, it's like spooky for people. Mm. Well, I guess they're also kind of erratic, right? When they yes. flutter, it's like very like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, how was that, Susanna? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. I, yeah. I totally There's an element of surprise there. I totally get it. They're very fluttery, like, in your face, whereas butterflies who do more delicate and they, like, flap with a lower frequency, it seems. But, um, yeah. 
I, there's actually a lot of like superstitions uh, where I work in where I used to work in Honduras over the summers like they have these big I actually don't even know what they're called but they're really big black moths they're like huge they're the size of like your hand or like bigger um they I don't know if they get stuck or what they do but like they come out at night and then they kind of just sit on a wall maybe it's similar to the ones that your boyfriend is afraid of where they kind of just sit on the wall and there's just these giant black moths and they were considered like as an omen of death so when people would wake up and see these moths they would hate it be like oh my god no like somebody's gonna die this is terrible which you know is a very traumatic superstition and not good for the moths uh, public relations <laughs> um, I don't know that he's seen those because the moths that I'm talking about are literally the very common ones that are like oh and they're like you know they fly to the source of light and then they yeah. get burned yeah. and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I think they call them like the a black witch or something witch and then there's also a white witch moth i think they were oh, wow. we saw them in honduras i have no idea what their range is maybe they're just tropical but yeah they're not not well received by the locals <laughs> i don't know if i could ever have one in my hand though <laughs> i don't even want a butterfly in my hand one time one time i tried really hard to be in one of those butterfly pavilions and i had like the nectar in my hand and i was holding it uh-huh. And the, the minute the butterfly landed on me, I, like, threw it and screamed and, like, ran out of the place. I can totally envision you, like, yeah. And, like, I actively try to overcome my fear. So last year That's I good. went into a butterfly sanctuary and I just, like, stood inside of it and was like, okay, okay, I'm here, I'm here. Like, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Like, those are all over there. And then as soon as they came near me, I was like, oh, I got to move. Like, I was, I, like I try, I try really hard. That's very admirable. That <laughs> Success is. or failure, you made the effort. Okay, so before we end, any last bits of advice about butterflies, environments, snakes, anything? Fun fact for you: actually, poison is something that you eat, and venom is something that's injected. But yeah, I learned that. But actually, it confuses the crap out of me because so in English, snakes can be poisonous if you eat them and you get poisoned. But they're venomous if they, like, have venom. But in Spanish, it's the same word. And it drives me nuts. Because I'm like, it's not the same thing. Why don't you have two different words for it? Oh. I didn't know that. Oh, in I Spanish, didn't know they were different. Or yeah. maybe in a different region of, that, of, like, where they speak Spanish. Maybe in a different region they do. But in Mexico, everyone just calls everything poison. And it drives me bonkers. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I want to eat something that's also venomous. But things can be both poisonous and venomous. Another fun fact. <laughs> I learned the difference because there was an example where, so I guess in Oregon, there's an animal called Oregon Newt, and apparently highly poisonous. And these guys, these three guys were camping, and the next day they were all found dead. Uh, And what happened was, I think they were cooking something over a fire, and I think a newt got into it. And so all, like, the poisonous properties, like, got into their, I think it was, like, their coffee or something. No. And so when they, like, drank it and ate it, like, they didn't realize. And so they all died. Oh, my God. That's crazy. How unlucky do you have to be? (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That reminded me of that. But that's how I learned about the difference because we were talking about it in our our class. And I was like, huh. Well, (laughs) I learned about the difference today right now. (laughs) (laughs) There are poisonous butterflies, right? Who's eating butterflies? I want to say yes, but I can't think of. I don't know. I don't think so. I think I remember someone, this could be totally false, but isn't there a butterfly that looks like the monarch butterfly, but it's not? Yes. And is that one poisonous? Yeah, I know what you mean now. 
I've never heard of one that's poisonous to humans, but you are talking about the Danaus genus, which is the milkweed butterflies. So the monarch butterfly, actually, we did an eco-chem post on this. Um, yeah, so the monarch butterflies, the viceroy butterflies, and soldier butterflies. There's, and there's also the queen butterflies, and I think there's other butterflies in the genus as well. But anyway, um, they all feed on milkweed plants, which basically has like a compound in it that they like then take on and it makes them taste bad. But it makes them taste bad to birds, which is, like, we consider, like, poison. But it's not actually poison. It's just, like, they don't taste good. And that's only, like, in a certain, like, concentration of toxicity, I guess. So, yeah. So that's what that is. Oh, okay. I've never eaten a monarch, though. So I don't know, like, if it would taste good compared to another butterfly or not. But you have eaten a butterfly. I should clarify, I have not eaten a butterfly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, takeaways are... Poisonous is different from venomous, and you have not eaten butterflies. Yeah. And that's the episode. Thank you, Becky Friesen, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her on Instagram at becky.outside. And the resources for this episode are on the website. That means all fact-checking and all potential resources of anything you would like to do to help also preserve our planet. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram at globalcaveat. And thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass for producing our music. Thanks for listening.